Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. Welcome to this episode of Arabiyat. I'm Linda. My co-host Suraya was not able to join me today. She'll be back for the next episode. Today we're going to be talking about a topic that's constantly in the headlines, yet rarely covered in depth. Syria continues to be ravaged by war, and millions of people have been displaced from their homes, seeking refuge anywhere they can. They may be the most recently displaced wave of refugees coming from the Arab Middle East, but they're certainly not the first. In the last over half century, the Middle East has experienced wave upon wave of refugee crises that have yet to be resolved. Of course, the Palestinian refugee crisis is the most widely known. Their crisis begins in 1948 with the creation of the State of Israel. It is referred to as the Nakba or catastrophe in English. Uh, Closer to home, and when I say home, I mean the U.S., but far from media headlines, is the Iraqi refugee crisis created after the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. Today, I'm lucky enough to have with me Farah al-Musawi, an Iraqi refugee who fled Iraq shortly after the U.S.'s invasion in 2003. She was able to eventually gain political asylum in the U.S. in 2012 after living in Syria for a period of time. She's currently based in Monterey, California, where she's doing graduate work at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies. We're going to be able to hear her story firsthand and her reflections on the state of the affairs for refugees today. Welcome, Farah. Thank you very much for having me. So, Farah, tell me about the place that you grew up. Well, I was born and raised in Baghdad, Iraq, and um, I grew up in a secular household in the heart of Baghdad in an area called Rasafa. Um, Baghdad is known to be divided uh, into two halves by the River Tigris. So there's the Rasafa and there's the Karkh. So the first part of my life, I grew up in the Rasafa part with uh, four sisters. Um, I'm number four. I have three older and one younger. My parents were college educated and they both worked and we lived a a really you know satisfying life it's hard to say happy because I grew up during the sanctions as well um, during the 90s so it it wasn't ideal it was very difficult it was harsh many times but it was satisfying because we had what we needed and even though it wasn't a lavish or a luxurious life but my parents made sure to provide us with everything that we needed and we were very content So when do you leave Iraq? Um, My family and I left Iraq in um, May 2003. When my father passed away, we decided to move to the other side of Baghdad, which is Karakh, and that's where I, you know, second part of my life, I grew up there. Now, in 2003, when it happened, um, it became even more dangerous for us to live as women in one house together and not to have a male chaperone, especially with all the... um, you know, insurgent groups that came into the country. They're all um, very religious. They're very extreme. Uh, most of them were Shia. And they were imposing these really weird laws in, onto Iraqis and uh, particularly women. So women would not be able to leave the house without a male chaperone. Uh, you can't leave the house without wearing the hijab or wearing abaya. Um, and all these ridiculous rules that we didn't have to live with in Iraq before the invasion. Um, and then then shortly after, we received actually a death threat 
as many Iraqis, especially from the intellectual um, class in Iraq, a lot of people received death threats. And one of our family friends actually was shot a few days after the invasion. And that really scared us all. It shook the whole family and all our relatives. And so we decided that we couldn't live with my grandparents. We couldn't live with any of my uncle's houses. So we decided to live to uh, in Syria. <laughs> These groups, these these um, insurgent groups that you describe, you said that they were imposing laws on you. First of all, that means that the government wasn't in control of the region. That means you were subject to laws imposed by groups who you said aren't coming into Iraq. So they're not homegrown. They're not from Iraq. <clears throat> That's a good question. Um, a lot of people really don't understand how these insurgent groups came about. So what happened after the invasion, a lot of the opposition groups moved back to Iraq. Most of these opposition groups uh, were living... Opposition uh, to Saddam Hussein. To Saddam Hussein, okay. correct. And we call them in, in Iraq, al-Mu'arada. So they moved uh, back from England, uh, the United States, and the majority of them were living in Iran. Now, the ones who were living in Iran, they formed a party made out of a lot of groups of, of Iraqis who were actually living in Iran. Now, most of these Iraqis who were living in Iran, they fled Saddam Hussein's regime. They fled during the 90s. Some fled during the 80s, during the Iran-Iraq war. Now, they're very uh, religious. They're very passionate about religion. Uh, they are of the Shia 12-er sect. Um, and so a lot of times you find their rhetoric uh, especially when conversation comes about Saddam Hussein and Saddam Hussein's regime and Ba'athism, um, they tend to talk that about how Saddam Hussein oppressed the Shias because it's, you know, the Shia Madlumiyah, that's what they call, or the, the victimization of Shias. And so the leaders of the um, Shia sects, basically, when they came back, they formed milita military groups or militias. And most notably is the Badr Brigade that was formed uh, under the supervision and support of the Dawa Party. And the Dawa Party is considered to be one of the strongest religious groups in Iraq. And it gained actually a lot of control after the invasion. In fact, its most notable leaders have the majority in the parliament representation. And today you have the current Iraqi prime minister, uh, Haider al-Abadi, is from the Dawa Party, as well as Nur al-Maliki. He was, you know, still is, I believe, from the Dawa Party, but they have their own um, issues now with him. And so when they came into Iraq um, and they saw that there was no, you know, Saddam Hussein in charge anymore, none of his leadership, you know, members are in charge anymore. So they basically wreaked havoc in Iraq. They decided that they needed to get rid of every person who worked in the government, despite of their rank, despite of their background, despite of their work. And so a lot of innocent people who were members of the Ba'ath Party, not obviously by choice, um, were killed or assassinated. And you see a lot of the intellectual elite or intellectual class of Iraq, they had to flee the country because there was a list of assassinations. Anyone associated with Saddam's Anyone regime. was associated. Yeah, exactly. Even from the lower ranks. So at one point, students could not enroll in universities unless they're members of the, ba the Ba'ath Party. Those who graduate from universities and want to pursue a job in the government, they can't work in the government unless they're members of the Ba'ath 
bath party. So even if they don't want to do it, they have to do it. Otherwise, they can't get education and they can't get a job. And education in Iraq is free. And it's actually considered back then before the invasion to be one of the best educational systems in the Middle East. And you find people from Syria, Jordan, Yemen, Egypt coming all the way to live in Iraq to study because tuition for them was free and they got the best education um, that they could ever dream of. And then they go back to their countries and they get the best jobs that they could ever get. So at what point do you end up leaving and did your family also have associations with the regime? Well, not directly, but um, my mother was actually a member of the Iraqi parliament and, and the um, group who sent the death threat was? Was actually the Better Brigade. They had a list. Um, and my mother's name was on one of these lists. And um, so we we didn't have enough time. So we ba- barely took whatever we could. And um, we traveled up north to Mosul. And then from Mosul, we, we traveled to Syria. Where you stayed for five years? Where I stayed, yeah, in Syria for five years in Damascus. And I remember I, I listened to one of your interviews, and it mentioned that you passed through a town called Raqqa, right? Correct. So yeah. when you hear that, that's the new ISIS stronghold. I mean, did you yeah. have any reactions when you heard that? Absolutely. I mean, I definitely had a reaction when I heard about um, one of the churches in Mosul that was burned. We actually stayed at a family's house right next door to that church. And I remember, uh, because we stayed in Mosul for about a week, and I remember I went um, the next morning after we arrived, uh, the, one of the girls from the family that we um, stayed with, she and I went to the church and we lit candles. And then I, you know, read in the news that the church was burned down. So to me, that was just the worst thing, you know, ever to hear because you know this place and you've been there and you've met with the people. You broke bread and, um, you know, had coffee and, and, and water with them and, you see them, you know, being taken hostages or killed and, and their towns demolished. And same thing with Raqqa. You know, it, it was really hard because we also met nice people on our way. You know, the journey was not easy to Damascus back then. Um, I mean, it took us over a week to get to Damascus. And it was really hard because we had to go from town to town. And because it was in the middle of the war, everybody was going crazy. It was a complete chaos. And at every town we met, wonderful, amazing people who were so hospitable. They opened their homes to us and just treated us so nicely. And it's part of the Arab hospitality. Can you talk a little about the journey? You take a taxi to, I mean, how do you get out of Iraq? <laughs> Probably my my journey with my family leaving the country is not as difficult as many of the families have to go through today. I mean, today, when I, when you read the you know, the way that refugees flee their country and through sea and drown and some of them make it and some of them don't. It's just, you know, it makes my story it seems nothing. But like I said, at the time in 2003, it was a chaos and it was very, very scary. And we were worried about my mother's life, of course. So one of my uncles managed to help us get out of the, the country through connections and a friend of a friend of a friend who knows somebody who knows somebody. And we drove to Mosul 4 a.m. in the morning out of Baghdad on the 28th. And we stayed in Mosul for almost a week, I believe. And then after that, we basically walked through the borders to Syria. And then at the other end of the border, there was um, a truck that picked us up and took us to a village. And we stayed at a house overnight. And after that, we uh, were taken to a large truck, shipment truck. 
And um, my mother and my uncle sat in the front, and my younger sister and I uh, were sitting in the back, and we were squeezed in the back of the truck because it, it barely fits two people, but we managed to squeeze in. And we stayed like that for almost eight hours until we reached Damascus from Raqqa. And by the time we reached Damascus, I mean, he dropped us in the middle of, you know, the city, and we didn't know anybody or anything. And all we know is a, a name of a neighborhood. And we took a cab and said, hey, could you take us to this neighborhood? Because we heard it's, you know, some Iraqis are living there. And we went there to the neighborhood and we, we lived there for a few years. So you had no idea what you were going to do. You just left Iraq because you knew you had to. Absolutely. And, you know, we didn't we didn't know that the outcome of the war was going to be this dramatic. We didn't know it was going to be this this bad. As you know, Iraq went through several wars throughout its history. And many Iraqis believed that, oh, this is just going to be a few months and it will pass away. I mean, and everybody thought it's not going to be as worse, you know, than it was back in 1991. I mean, Iraqis still remember the severe effects of the 1991 war because, you know, they lost electricity for more than a month. You know, Baghdad did not have water yet. The water pipes flooded some parts of the city. And so it was, it, there was a lot of damage to the infrastructure. And so people thought, oh, I mean, it couldn't be that bad. You know, I mean, we lost a lot of lives, you know, a lot of problems happened during then. So we can, we can overcome this one. But not many people really thought that the government will be overthrown, that the leadership will collapse, that the military will end up being lost in the desert. And then people don't know what to do because they didn't receive commands from their central points. And so a lot of military um, sergeants, you know, ended up going to villages asking for uh, civilian clothes. And then they buried their uniforms and wore civilian clothes and walked for days back to their homes. Um, and they did this Why? Well, because they, they didn't receive any information from their central command in, in Baghdad oh, or Saddam, elsewhere. Saddam was Saddam, taken down yeah. and that's it. it was just... And it was, it was yeah, all communication was lost. Wow. All, it was imme almost immediately. For those of you who are just tuning in, we are speaking to Farah and Musawi, an Iraqi refugee who fled Iraq in 2003 and eventually gained political asylum in the U.S. in 2012. She's currently based in Monterey, California, and we are talking about her story and her reflections on the state of affairs for refugees today. So your family ends up in Damascus. You stay in Damascus and you uh, study in the university in Damascus. Correct. Um, so I know in a previous interview, you talked about your growing up listening to American music and, and just being, even though there were sanctions, you still had a favorable outlook on American culture, as many you know people throughout the mm -hmm. Middle East are. It's just a sure. normal thing. Do your views of America change once you are kind of made a refugee in Syria? Yeah, it actually happened before I moved to Syria. I used to listen to the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and Britney Spears. You know, I was, you know, child of the 80s, grew up in the 90s. So I know all the pop bands and music and movies. But it changed after I saw American tanks drive in our streets, in my, in my neighborhood in particular. And then even more so when I saw them outside of my sister's middle school. My sister's school used to be right next door to the Iraqi Museum. And right across the street from that was the Iraqi National Television Station. So the, the school was in a very central location. 
there were there were U.S. tanks, there were American tanks, and the soldiers were actually taking a break and playing basketball in my sister's, you know, school's courtyard. And I remember my uncle took me and my younger sister to go and, and you know, check our schedule and see if we're going to go back to school and if so, when and all that. Um, and I walked with my sister inside the school because I didn't want her to walk by herself. And there was a soldier who was standing there and he said, Assalamu alaikum. In a heavy American accent. And um, I looked him in the eye and I didn't respond, you know, and he said it again. And I this time I like even stared at him, you know, in a in a very tearful way, but also angry um, as if I was trying to tell him, you know, with my look that you really dare to speak with me in my language, in my own country, dressed in uniform. You know, to me, that's when I felt that I was truly invaded, that the invasion was not just an invasion of my country, but it was an invasion of, of my my home, my my sister's, you know, school. I became very protective. Um, and I was very, very angry. And I remember I was very shaken and, and, you know, wanted to cry. And that's when I decided I don't want to have anything to do with American music. I stopped listening to music. I stopped watching movies. I stopped doing anything that has to do with the United States. Not until I was in Syria and I was in Damascus University and I met so I, I used to have a lot of friends and because I spoke good English, my friends and I would practice English a lot and we would talk and um, and, the, and there were uh, foreign students who would come and study Arabic in Damascus um, at the International Language Institute there. And one of my friends said, oh, yeah, I met this American girl. She's really nice and you have to meet her. And we told her everything about you. And I said, I don't I don't want to meet her. And they said, oh, no, but she's different. She's not like any other American. She's, like, really nice and so sweet. And, you know, they were saying these wonderful things about her. And they insisted. And, you know, you know, Arab, Arabs, when they insist on something, you have to do. You have no choice, right. <laughs> no escape, you know. Um, and so I said, okay, but I'm not going to stay for long. And so we met, she and I. And she was saying, oh, I heard so many great things about you and that you spoke really good English. And, and I looked at her and I said, you know, I don't like you and I don't like your people you invaded my country you hurt my people your people kill my people and I don't think I can have this conversation with you and and she cried you know at that point she cried and she said you know on behalf of me and my people I apologize to you and your people and and I cried right away and I'm usually not a very emotional person <laughs> it takes a lot for me to cry but at that point I just broke down and and we hugged each other and you know we, we chatted for a little bit after that and you know we each went our way and then I never saw her again. And I think that was a turning point for me, you know, when I met that, you know, young woman, because then I became curious. I wanted to know, well, it seems like not all American people are bad, not all, because the media showed that everybody was on board with the war, you know, mm. um, even saw, even though we saw some protests on the television, but, you know, like, well, you know, the protests didn't do much. And then even more so after George Bush was elected the second term. And I was like, well, that's, you know, definitely people love him so much because wow. he invaded yeah, our country. No, so. Couldn't be further from the truth. <laughs> exactly. Right. So and and we don't know much about American politics. We didn't know much about American people. So I became even more curious and I started to find more American, you know, students and I would hang out with them and talk to them and ask them those questions. And then I had the opportunity to to apply for a scholarship uh, to come and study here in the U.S. And I did. And I'm glad I did. And here you are. And here I am. Did you ever <laughs> expect to be living in America? Not really, no. I never expected to be living abroad. Um, you know, I didn't have... Actually... 
so after the war happened, I just stopped thinking ahead. I just started to think like, if I wake up the next day, I'm very grateful. You know, that's that's the best that I could hope for, and whatever comes, you know, my way, I'll I'll accept it. You know, without regrets. Um, so I, I stopped planning ahead for my life. You know, I said, well, if I wake up next morning and I'm okay, I'll go back to, you know, I'll go to school and finish my classes. And then if I graduate, then maybe I'll just find a simple job and live a simple life and all of that. But um, but after meeting that woman, you know, the curiosity in me just, you know, was just so strong. And I wanted to learn more about American culture. And, and it was a big decision for me to decide to come here, and especially on my own. So tell me, now that you're here and you're settled and you're no longer thinking day to day, mm-hmm. you can now plan ahead in your life. Mm-hmm. And you know, years after being here, you're seeing now Syrian people seeking refuge, trying to come to Europe, to America. What What are your thoughts? It's definitely painful to see that happen because as somebody who lived in Syria, as somebody who has been to a lot of the areas that have been either occupied by ISIS or facing severe airstrikes by the Syrian regime or taken over by Jabhat al-Nusra and, and other militant groups, um, it's just so painful to to see that happen and to see that countries or or politicians refusing the idea to host refugees because of fear of terrorism is just nauseating really why would they flee their homes go through the jeopardy of drowning in the sea and then living in tents under the cold winter you know wind and and snow to come to america to or to europe to attack western countries there hasn't been any evidence of, you know, any of the terrorists that attacked Paris or uh, planning to attack, you know, any other country are affiliated with the refugees. They're all homegrown terrorists. I think governments and politicians really need to understand the conflict because a lot of them really talk out of ignorance, in my opinion. Um, I do applaud President Obama for committing to welcome 10,000 Syrian refugees. I think that's a great step, but it's not really enough. You know, the United States can help more than that. How do you react to the Arab Gulf nation's position about refugees what what do refugees do do they not do they think hey we should go to you know Qatar but then they're not accepted what how does that take place I'm glad you asked me about that because (laughs) I think that needs a whole hour to talk about really um I'm really disgusted by the Gulf region not the people but the the governments obviously what Saudi Arabia for instance did they gave money to the United Nations and they said here buy some more tents that is the utmost ridiculous, least Islamic reaction. There's a reason why refugees seek refuge in Europe and not the Middle East. And the reason is that because they know that these governments behave that way. They're very elitist. They come from a very privileged background. And they think of everybody else as beneath them. And so their reaction to the crisis was to throw money at the problem rather than help fix the problem. Who would want to live in Saudi Arabia, for instance? It's basically like one of my friends described it like ISIS, but has a legal you know, representation right. in the world. You know, I mean, just yesterday they were executing 50 people. Uh, the other day they planned to execute a Palestinian poet for being an atheist. You know, they still follow the laws of chopping somebody's hand if they steal something. And what really 
um, what really drives me crazy the most is the fact that a lot of these Saudi, you know, wealthy men have managed to marry young Syrian women for short periods of time, and then they ship them back for from for money. Wow. So there is a whole prostitution ring that's happening in the Middle East right now. Families are so desperate for money. They live way beneath the lines of poverty that they ship their daughters off. You know, there, there are pimps that actually travel to these camps, hand-select these girls, take them to countries like Bahrain or Dubai, and then they sell them as wives for Saudi or Emirati or Qatari, you know, rich uh, men. And in fact, there are a lot of ISIS sympathizers in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. If you go to um, watch a segment about ISIS on Al Jazeera, for instance, watch it on YouTube, right? And you find in the comment section a lot of people who comment or even on, on Twitter, you know, they, they reply or retweet in support of ISIS. And when you trace these tweets, you'll find a lot of them are accounts of people who live in Saudi Arabia or people who live in Qatar or people, people who live in that region. So they're not helping with the solution because they are part of the problem. And let's not forget that the U.S. and Saudi Arabia have extremely exactly. strong relationship exactly. economically, politically. And we won't go there, but that's all the time that we have for today. Thank you so much for coming in. We are speaking with Farah al-Musawi, an Iraqi refugee who fled Iraq in 2003, gained political asylum in the U.S. in 2012. She's currently based in Monterey, California, where she's a graduate student at the Middlebury Institute for International Studies. Thank you so much for coming in today, Farah. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Arabiyat. Our theme song is by Muqata'a. The track is called Ahya'a. You can follow him on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash B-O-I-K-U-T-T. And you can email us at arabiyat.podcast at gmail.com. That's A-R-A-B-I-Y-A-A-T dot podcast at gmail.com. Also, please follow us on social media. We're on Facebook.com at Arabiyat Podcast, and our Twitter handle is at Arabiyat. We'd love your feedback, both positive and critical. Let us know if you have any topic or guest suggestions for future shows. We'd love to hear from you. 